This is Lucy Bishop. And Fraser Greenfield. This is Augustine Scott from Big Game, and you're listening to Redacted. 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 Augustine Scott de Martinville, Gregor Genemonand, and Eric Petit are Big Game, an award-winning design studio founded in 2004 based in Lausanne, Switzerland, just south of Zurich. Today, we're very lucky to be joined with Augustine de Martinville from Big Game. Big Game are best known for their work with Muji, Alessi, Muto, Nespresso, Hermes, Ikea, and many, many more. How did you discover the field of industrial design? So we're a group of uh, three people and we have different backgrounds. Uh, Elric is from Belgium, Greg is from, uh, is from Switzerland and I'm French, but I grew up in China. So we all have very different cultures and uh, sort of upbringings. I guess we all discovered uh, industrial design in a different way. I think um, in, my, in my case, it was um, from living in Hong Kong for a number of years. I remember being very exposed to a culture of objects, manufactured objects, and kind of always wondering, you know, about how they were created, who decided that they would look like this or function this way. And before I guess I knew about the words industrial design, I was sort of imagining myself being the one creating those objects. I know for Elric, it's a little bit different. He approached it a little bit more from the architecture side. And, uh, and I guess um, for Greg, there was also, and it's also for everyone, there was a big influence on, on drawing and, and um, you know, wanting to create visual things, I think. Sounds like an incredible, like, melting pot. <laughs> well, what school did you go to? Uh, I was in a French international school okay. uh, in Hong Kong. Do you know people from there? Uh, from the yeah, yeah, my mom, the... my mom grew up there. So that was, okay. it was an interesting conversation with the previous guest. Uh, <laughs> she went to KG5, so... And I spent a lot of summers there. I know, I know about KG5. We used to play against them in uh, rugby. <laughs> but they win, right? <laughs> uh, not always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really sounds like a secret spy organization. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's also, I mean, it's also a sort of, a, you know, really meeting by chance, you know, what are the odds that uh, you end up you know, working together for such a long time. And I feel very blessed uh, for that. You know, it's a bit like when you meet someone and you get married and you're, you stay together all your lives and you're like, wow, you know, how lucky was I? So it's a little bit that, that type of a feeling. Yeah. A working marriage. Like soulmates or like a twin <laughs> yeah. flame. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for starting off super corny, but yeah. I love it. Was there anything that like was a shared inspiration? Yeah. So, I mean, we started, you know, we were, we started straight from school and actually I think I was still studying for, for a year after we started. So it was, um, it was kind of a um, common interest first in the first place. So, you know, sharing the interest for everyday objects, common things, uh, objects that you don't necessarily think that have been designed by someone, you know, just uh, like a, a simple light fixture or something, but then you start to look at it more in detail and realize how that it's actually quite nicely resolved. Uh, that type of thing, and also sharing um, a taste for a, a certain style of, of drawing, which is called Ligne Claire in French. Um, you know, all the um, sort of comics, uh, Franco-Belgian comics, like uh, Tintin, um, that type of, uh, of drawing, which is very clean with an outline and a, and a flat uh, color uh, filling. That's the, it's the kind of expression that we, we were very drawn to and that we shared in common. 
That's really interesting because uh, one of the designers in my team, he has a Tintin picture framed behind him in his Zoom background. So I wonder if that's like a common thread. Yeah, well, there, there's there's definitely something about the, I mean, if you look at Tintin albums very carefully, you see that um, there's, there's a level of abstraction, which is quite nice, but it's also done in such a way that sometimes objects are, are depicted very precisely. So you can see that uh, the author had a keen eye for detail and that would really notice certain pieces of furniture and uh, it's, it's very nicely done. Incredible. I'll have to have a closer look. <laughs> <laughs> You're from all different parts of, of, I guess, Western Europe, but you yourself has, you know, you grew up in Hong Kong. Um, how did you guys meet? So we met in a, in a, in a really great school in Lausanne, which is called, uh, in English is called Un the University of Art and Design. And we, we met there in the early 2000s and it was, a, it was really an, an incredible time to be there. There was a new director at the time that came in and he, he started things that were completely unheard of. For instance, he would make exhibitions at the Milan Furniture Fair where he would showcase work from students. Um, he would get uh, young up-and-coming designers to come and teach. So for instance, we had the, as teachers, we had the Burulex, we had Barbara Roscoby come over, we had the Campana brothers from Brazil, we had uh, Matali Casset from France or Pearson and Lloyd that came to do workshop. And also students got to collaborate with companies, which was, you know, we were, I don't know, 20 to 22 or three, and we were put in contact with, uh, you know, industrial partners that were actually looking for new things. And that's, uh, that's very enriching. There was very little theory, actually, and, uh, and a lot of uh, hands-on experience. Amazing. It sounds very similar to my experience. Like very, very little lectures and study and definitely no exams. All just like practical. Wow. So was it was it at school or did you learn sort of on the job? So I studied at RMIT, the Melbourne Institute of Technology, and they have a very similar kind of industry partnership where people will come in to teach studios and maybe they're like designing a coffee machine and everybody is designing their own version or they're working in groups. And then at the end of the semester, you would present them and they would choose one and they'd go ahead and work on manufacturing it. Or like in one case, we were designing cider bottles for a cider company. So they bought all these kegs of well, not kegs, they were like slabs of cider and everyone drank the cider and like drew forms. And <laughs> it was <Great>. good. <laughs> so wait, did you guys like do a group project together and not hate each other at the end of it? And that's why you decided to stick around together? Um, well, it's, uh, we, we did collaborate a little bit while in school. We were actually flatmates. So that's a pretty good uh, test when you think about it, you know, not <laughs> fighting over, uh, not doing the dishes and stuff. That's a, that's a good start. I mean, you can blame someone right now if you want, they probably will <laughs> never hear it. <laughs> you know, no, but it's more like, you know, you know, friends after a certain period of times, it's not, you don't like them because you, you think they're perfect. You like them because you're okay with their, their flaws. You're sort of okay with them. So it's a bit like, you know, it's good to know each other before you get any kind of commitment. But it, it started very organically, actually. It, it, we just, when you talk about a group project, the first thing we did together was to exhibit in Milan in during the furniture fair. And that was our group project in a way. Uh, we did it. We were super young. We were super naive. And it worked, actually. So that's um, that's how we got started. 
That's a pretty iconic beginning. Well, the thing is, it's uh, also for us, like Milan is quite nearby. It's like, um, you know, it's a few hours drive. And it's also, um, there's a place there that's called Salone Satellite, which is reserved for young designers. So you can rent a very tiny booth. And it's, uh, I think the ratio between exposure and what you actually spend to go there is 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 unbelievable because everybody visits that uh, that hall. So, you know, we, we got to meet, Brands like Ligne Rosé uh, that that came to our booth and wanted to produce some objects. It was a uh, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Sounds like I need to book a booth. Though. I was going to say I'm actually familiar with it because RMIT have their own like stall that they put forward student work at. Yeah, exactly. So you and you meet people from all over the world. I remember discussing with uh, super cool Canadian guys that were exhibiting there. Very cool. Nice place. Yeah. What would you say was the the secret formula to your uh, initial success at, at Milan? Well, we we started, and we at the time we wanted to we wanted to to do things a little bit differently. So it was in two thousand and four. So that's a, young, a long time ago. And and our school had just bought a CNC cutter, and we we made some hunting trophies out of plywood that you could assemble yourself. You know, a bit like um, IKEA furniture. Um, it was inspired by those, you know, those dinosaurs that you get as a kid in 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 cut plywood sheets that you 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 break apart and then you assemble and they look like dinosaur skeletons. We did the same, but for a one-to-one scale, like a, I think it was a moose head and a deer head and a, a smaller roe deer. And it kind of it kind of was an instant hit somehow because it I don't know it was the right moment for this kind of object. We we got a crazy response in a way. Uh, I was looking at my email the other day, going back all the way to the beginning of, of when we started having a, an email for the studio. And we had emails from people from Crate and Barrel in New York writing to us, uh, you know, where can we buy it? Or we have had an article in Wallpaper. We had a lot of publications. It Also, this was a time where you would get more printed press, which is super rare nowadays as a young designer to be featured in a in a magazine. But at the time, there, there were virtually no blogs or nothing really good online. So you would get a lot of printed press quite, uh, quite easily by exhibiting. And so, yeah, that's how we got launched. I think we were lucky because it was the, the right place and the right time for, for this type of objects. And we showed a little collection that was all around this idea of things that are inspired by a sort of a little bit bourgeois or old world tradition, but but done in a very humble DIY uh, way. So a, con- a nice contrast between the two uh, aspects. Definitely. I feel like there's also that connection between the deers and the moose being in nature and being made out of nature, which is pretty nice as well. That's an, yeah, that's a, that's a, another nice point about it. The funny thing is that uh, people would see a lot of different things in that object. Like uh, we, we, sometimes we had, uh, you know, hunters that would come to buy one and put it next to a, an actual head that they had on their walls. And then you would have on the other end of the spectrum, some people that really congratulated us for doing something against hunting. And we were like, you know, read it however you want. <laughs> it's it's fine, you know, <laughs> we're okay with everything. Let, let them fill in the blanks, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like the Lego brick, you know, and, the, and your imagination just turns it into something. Yeah. And you turn that into the start of a business? Well, it's, yeah, we like, like I said, it's, it's very organic, very little uh, planning ahead. Even the name of the studio, we didn't have a name for ourselves and we thought, you know, we need our, our three names together is impossible. Like you've uh, experienced trying to pronounce them at the beginning of the podcast. So it's, a, it's we need something. So we, we you know, because we had big, big uh, 
heads of animals. We thought big game was a clever name, you know, big animals that you hunt. Also, it was a bit, uh, you know, not too serious. Um, our director at, in school at the time, he would always say like, do everything seriously, but never take yourself too seriously. So we thought it was, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek, not too serious, and also a bit ambitious, you know, saying we want to become big game for, you know, producers in Italy by doing that. I love that. Can I take a step back for just a second? Sure. You said that like lots of people interpreted these plaques really differently. I feel like maybe that's what made it so successful. Like that's kind of the common thread in successful art is how people can resonate with their own experience. Like maybe that was what made it so special two people looking I, is that they could connect to it in a way that they hadn't felt with other items like a taxidermied moose <laughs> yeah, yeah i completely agree with you in the sense that i think the for 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 us i think the beauty in 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 art is when you can say a lot with very little you know you have there is something that that starts a con, you know a conversation or an interpretation or people see it differently and start to discuss i think that's that's the nice part about you know creating something i'm calling it art but that's very pretentious it's i don't think it's art at all but just you know anything that you create that can get people started and and discussing it and seeing it in different ways i think is really interesting definitely i feel like it's a hard thing to like capture so incredible that you were able to do it mm. so early <laughs> yeah so you got all this print media and then you decided to turn it into a business what was the first six months of big game what was that like so we got uh, some producers uh, that immediately started producing some of the objects the, so the hunting trophies got produced by a, by a belgian company um, the, we made some trestles that were uh, also with a very intricate uh, sort of uh, profile that looked a bit like some Renaissance, uh, very uh, carefully designed table. But then it was just a piece of cut uh, thick plywood. And these got produced by Ligne Rosé, which is a French brand of furniture. And, um, and we, you know, we were like, OK, that's it. We're... <laughs> we're getting started uh, and we also one funny thing is that we immediately experienced uh copy on a crazy scale like uh, the hunting trophies got copied in so many ways i mean the idea right doing a hunting trophy uh, a bit with this technique you know a lot of objects were inspired by that but but also you could see a lot of copies people would send us uh, things where you could actually literally see that the the exact pattern had been cut in the same way or that they took some parts and and changed it uh, changed the scale sometimes and um you know there was a guy from uh, Chile that uh, showed us that they made a smaller version and then they also made a llama just in case you know <laughs> or in Thailand in Thailand they made some uh, miniature uh, you know jewelry pendants uh, with exactly the same design so uh and and that's also, I mean, an experience to have pretty early on, you know, you design something and it's immediately sort of super copied and, and you can't do anything about it, especially at the time, you know, it was completely impossible to to do anything about it. But um, yeah, so that's that's our, our very first experience. No clients apart from, especially in the furniture world where it's it's working pretty much as a, you know, you propose a project and then you get royalties. So it's very rare to get a, a, a commission when you start and it's in a, and it's even more rare to, you know, get upfront payments. So we were sort of, um, you know, running 
very basic laptops and uh you know in uh in our sort of flat and and thinking about stuff to do so wait you guys were living together were you like also working full-time on this at this point or just was this just a part-time endeavor yeah it was really a part-time endeavor we had um we had side jobs we had side hustles um we were doing a bit of teaching uh we're teaching assistants um and also uh greg was working in a company uh, in the in the watchmaking field so we yeah we had also we had some hustles that would pay our salaries watchmaking that's very swiss yes yeah we can talk at length about it later i have a lot to, <laughs> lot to speak about <laughs> so what would you class as your first big break and what did that look like um it's it's hard to say a big break because um because it's it's kind of um you know we were we were doing things and we wanted to sort of make a name for ourselves that would be a little bit more recognizable so we were making collections a bit like fashion designers you know we would uh, we would create a collection around a, a topic and then exhibit it either in milan or in germany and uh, one of the thing that that got a bit of traction was a a chair called a bold chair that we designed again without a without a client in mind but um inspired by the classics from the bauhaus where you would have a bended steel tube and um and then we thought you know maybe we could make it more interesting by not having a seat and a backrest, but actually if the tube itself um, becomes the chair. So we're playing around with this uh, on our on our 3D programs at the time, you know, with Rhino, very early version. And by thickening the tube in the 3D program, we would sort of make it look very chunky. And then we we're thinking, how can we make that a reality? And after thinking for a while, we found the solution, which was to have a polyurethane foam injected on top of it. And then, uh, and then covering it with a with a fabric, and because we didn't want to have a seam that would sort of turn around, we we had to find a somebody who could make these sort of very long tubes. So we we found um, a sock manufacturer in France, and we just asked them to make the longest sock they had ever made. So like a two meter sock with an open end, and uh, and that yeah, that was our first chair actually, and we we showed it in an exhibition in Milan. And it, it's, it was so weird, um, you know, so strange. We, we ourselves didn't even think about making a product out of it, but some people were actually interested. And I guess, I think the, the guys that ended up producing it, I think when they, when they approached us, I think our first initial reaction was don't do it. It's not, uh, it's, it's not, a, it's not a good idea. It's a, but they did it. And, uh, and, and eventually it's, um, it's now in, it's in the collection of MoMA in New York. So we, uh, oh, wow. yeah, so when you some... buy it, does it come with a really big sock? Yeah, it's already <laughs> like the pair. <laughs> Do you get spares? <laughs> so it comes, it comes, it's already covered by the sock, but you can buy spare socks on the website and they ship it to you and you can sort of remove the previous sock and, and put a new one. Oh my gosh. That really does make it sound like a fashion collection, doesn't it? <laughs> they have to have a Christmas print, otherwise I won't buy one. Oh, that would be fun. They have some with Lurex. They have they have crazy ones. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this sounds incredible. <laughs> what we never had, and maybe that's a good opportunity, is a is a hand knitted one. Maybe uh, maybe we can make a call. <laughs> stop! Stop! I feel like you really need to get in contact with the people who make Kujis. Wow, what's that? 
So it's actually quite an interesting story. So I'd say they've been really made famous by Biggie Smalls. So ironically, it's a company that started in Melbourne. They had a unique way of creating uh, knitting. So each one is unique. I'm showing them off. This is a terrible thing for a podcast. We'll have it in the show notes. Each one is totally unique, and I have no idea how they make them. But they've recently been purchased by an American company. But they would be very cool to get in contact with. Uh, it looks amazing. I mean, just if you say Biggie Smalls sweater, and you know, imagine that on the chair. I mean, there's that's it. You know, Biggie, Biggie, Biggie. Absolutely. You see? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you're probably familiar with that, like, iconic jumper that he wears. So they were originally from Melbourne. Wow, incredible. So is that generally how you function as a business? You build a collection and then you exhibit it and you see who uh, who, who wants to collaborate? So that was, that was our uh, way of functioning for the first, uh, I think, three or four years. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, as we got traction, we started getting uh, more commissions and working with brands on a more sustained type of, uh, of exchange. And so we, we sort of broke away a little bit from this uh, collection and exhibition uh, thing that we had done. Again, it was all done very organically. So we did never, you know, told ourselves we need to change our way of doing things, but it just happened that we started getting more and more requests and we would simply answer the people who come to us. <laughs> Build it and they will come. And at what point did you like sit down, you guys all opened up a, and a bottle of lick and you said you've made it well the thing is you it's i don't know i don't know if you ever make it because it's never it's really an endurance sport right it's like it's not mm-hmm. one big break it's always these small wins and uh, and they're all different and also because from the start we didn't want to f- focus on one industry we wanted to be as as uh, open as possible because that's what we wanted to do when we were kids, you know, we wanted to do a toothbrush and a, and a bottle and a chair and why not a car, you know, something very open. So it's very hard to sort of air quote, make it be if you have all these different uh, industries, because maybe making it in the watchmaking industry has is completely irrelevant in the furniture industry. And, and so it's, it's always, you know, a new experience, a new opening leading to something more interesting. Um, but some some significant steps were having a first product in Japan, for instance, for uh, Karimoku New Standard, which is the biggest manufacturer of wooden furniture in Japan. And we had the, the opportunity through a friend from class uh, that was working there to to do a first product with them. And, and since then, it's been going on still to this day. We are still putting new products on the on the market with them. And it's a it's a real dream because they're so thorough and 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 they work so well and so respectful of the design um so it's 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 really great um and then so another break could be when you have your first product that ends up being produced in more than a million pieces like uh we we got commissioned to do um a bottle of wine for the biggest uh producer of wine in switzerland which is i guess it was you know, more than 10 million bottles every year. Oh. And and this product was, the, the thing we really liked about it is that it's super humble, right? It's when you buy mm-hmm. wine in the supermarket, you don't think about the bottle, right? You don't, you don't care, actually. You look at the label, you do. But so it was, you know, this, this product that had to look like a bottle of wine, otherwise it would look weird and you would be sort of, you know, is this olive oil or something? So it had to look the part, but slightly different. 
and it was quite humble. It was sold in supermarket. Anybody could buy it. Uh, and that's all, that for us was also a big achievement and something we were quite excited about. What, was it was it red wine or white wine? It was all types of wine because it's the they have um, you know white, red, rosé, you name it, uh, and they also had different sizes. They had uh, half bottles, full bottle, uh, magnums, and uh, you know all with the same shape and design. Uh, and there also talk about learning. You know there was so much learning from the industrial process of making uh, glass bottles, and it's not only about the glass bottle itself, but also about how it's filled in the factory, it needs to have certain um, uh, characteristics that make it uh, uh, easy to fill without, you know, without spilling, without uh, falling from the conveyor yeah, belt. You. And exactly all these things that are that are very nerdy, but also very interesting and, you know, that we, we enjoy learning about every time. I, I know that pain all too well. Is the dimple at the bottom designed to catch the sediment inside the wine? Actually not. It was more, um, it was, we wanted to create a, a shape that visually would sort of make it look a little bit like a pedestal. So it would like a base that would sort of, you know, lift the, the higher part. Um, so it was a bit, uh, you know, sort of symbolical shape that it's not really functional. Um, and there are three stars on it that come from the logo of the brand, which actually comes from the coat of arm from that region of Switzerland, which is the biggest producer of wine. So it's really, you know, it's almost like playing with these sort of architectural elements and putting it into an object. But it looks very simple in a way, but there's something you don't really see is that this sort of wider part at the bottom has to be perfectly aligned um, uh, vertically with the with the top edge of the bottle. So it it looks like it's uh, sort of straight, but there's a slight angle because they need to be parallel. Otherwise, they fall from the conveyor belt. So things that, you know, tiny sort of optical corrections that you can't really tell and you have no idea about when you take the bottle in your hand. But you and the guys were when we launched it, they were like, that's a very handy bottle, guys. Well done. <gasps> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you still have some of the magnums left so that, like, in your next big break, you'll be able to, like, celebrate <laughs> like a Formula One driver. <laughs> I feel like that would be such a theme. <laughs> in, in terms of wine, the I think the best is when you work with Alessi. He makes his own wine, Alberto Alessi, and it's, it's um, I think, it's the most delicious wine in, in the world. And he... We're fortunate that he sends us a few bottles every year. So that's, uh, in itself, that's uh, a good reason to try and work for Alessi. That is a Christmas card list I would kill <laughs> to be on. <laughs> I'll send him a nice Christmas letter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, wait, you guys are based in Switzerland, which is home of the Swiss watchmaking industry. That surely must mean you've done some watches. Yes, yes, we've we've done some watches. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's, uh, it's another niche culture, which is... Um, which is very interesting in itself that has its codes that are super clear. There's a vocabulary which is unique to watchmaking. Uh, there are some processes, uh, all kinds of stuff. Like if you show a watch that has hands, uh, so, um, you know, showing the, the hour and the minutes, if you don't show it at 10 past 10, they won't look at it. Basically, it's like, it's such a rookie mistake that you're you're not even considered. Like there's... Or, or you do it as a, as a sort of rebel way of, you know, you want to do something differently, but there's a good reason behind it. But just as an example, you know, just showing a watch and the two hands are not in the right position, that's like, you know, not possible, no go. 
I think a colleague of mine called it the watch's smile. Yes, that's where it, that's where it's it's supposed to come from. But it, there's also a reason uh, that it uh, sort of highlights the the brand name uh, that's in this V, um, and also it doesn't hide uh, if there's a date at three uh, three a.m. So, yeah, many many backstories always. But uh, yeah, very very precise culture. That's so interesting. You think part of it is also like. Obviously, if you showed it to someone it wasn't 1010, they could be like, oh, can you change it? But is it part of the reason they don't want to work with you that you haven't honoured, like, the heritage of the watchmaking to know that that is a rule? I guess it's such, an, it's such a closed community that it's sort of, it's a way to see that you're, you're, you're not a part of it. You know, it's like, because it's, you know, designing a watch is so much about looking, because they, they, there is a lot of similarity. So you need to train your eye by looking at them and, and being able to really detect, you know, each brand's sort of unique DNA. And if you don't have the hands in the right position, that shows that you haven't looked at enough watches, I guess. You know, it's just a, as a start, it's like, okay, <laughs> go back to the drawing board. So uh, which, which watch brand did take a gamble on you guys, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say are outsiders of it? So... Um, so we, the first one we ever designed was for Lexon in France. So that's uh, that was our our gateway into into this world. It was um, we we didn't manage to immediately start in Switzerland, um, and then uh, the first one that we can really talk about is uh, is Rado, uh, which is a beautiful brand that has a a lot of knowledge in uh, in. The using very high tech material like uh, ceramics and stuff like that, and it's uh, it's very interesting when you actually work with Swiss watchmakers that basically you know you move your tenth of a millimeter approach to more to the hundredth of a millimeter or even more sometimes. Um, it's very very detailed, and the reason why they say I say that um, it's the only one I can talk about is that that's another feature of the watchmaking industry is that they're hugely secretive so we can only show a few of the things that we have done a few of the watches that we have designed because a lot of it you're never allowed to talk about it or show it or or have it on your website or well yeah it's interesting Is, would that because it would they worry that it would corrupt the value of their brand if they if certain buyers knew it wasn't necessarily designed in-house so if certain customers I think there's various uh, reasons for it, probably a culture of the industry in a way. Also, I think when you're talking about watchmaking, there's so much intelligence and um, and so many uh, actors, you know, with different know-how that it's a little bit unfair to highlight only the designer because, you know, you watch, you work with people with amazing, you know, craft and knowledge and why would you only have the name of a designer? That makes sense. And maybe certain brands also just want to have the brand message. They don't want to have another, you know, sort of another message on top of it, which is the name of a person. That, um, and and we we respect that. We think it's why not? You know, it's um, we adapt to it when it's necessary. Later, you managed to work with some really big name brands like Alessi, IKEA, and Muji. How did you first make these connections, and what were the challenges and surprises that came along with the projects? So yeah, every so all the, the names that you mentioned are are from very different countries. So that in itself, you know, like the local culture, that's already that's already a big change. You know, like for instance, Alberto Alessi. The first time we met him, uh, we drove all the way to Italy through the Alps. 
And when we, we met with him, it was in, a, in his beautiful office where we ha he had some prototypes from, you know, really big names of, of design. And, uh, and he offered us like the strongest cigar we had ever, ever smoked. <laughs> we really choked on it. Kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. <laughs> but it's a cigar, but it, like a humble cigar, you know, it's, I think it's called a Garibaldi, you know, like a kind of a work, a, you know, worksman cigar or something like a traditional Italian cigar. So that, how can you compare that to, you know, working with uh, Ikea in Sweden, which is completely another story and and you go to their headquarters and you know you've i've never had a product meeting with that many people in the room for just a, a children's a little children's chair i think there were 25 people for a product meeting um so it's a it's it's every time it's it's um it's very different also sometimes it's the same product for instance we design a coffee cup for nespresso which is a part of nestle which is one of the biggest company in the world and at the same time we design a coffee cup for a potter in southern japan where it's literally this one guy you know that's gonna make the coffee cup himself and um i think it's the job never gets boring because it's there's so much you know human sort of interaction and and there's so many things that are said and also those that are sort of exchanged um it's yeah really interesting for instance the, of course the stakes are higher if you talk about uh, about um ikea for instance you, you know even if you make a, a kid's chair you have to take into account that maybe an adult weighing 100 kilograms will use it as a stepladder and the stakes are not that high if you make a coffee cup in southern Japan for the same reasons. But maybe there are other things that are important in that context. And uh, and you can also try different things every time. I feel like a big one would be uh, like the environmental impacts as well with the chair. Because if you can save some material, you're actually going to be saving an enormous amount of material. Exactly. Just removing that screw will actually make a huge difference. Yeah. I'd heard a statistic somewhere. I haven't fact-checked it, but apparently if IKEA were to make all of their furniture out of like virgin wood, not the chipboard material that they mainly use, we would have no forests left. Like they single-handedly would be responsible for deforesting the earth. So it's a really interesting problem to have to deal with. I think it's it, it makes what you say makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, what they deliver, they have such a huge impact. And especially now when you have all this talk about um, sustainability, I think it's always an arbitrage, right? What do you do? What do you change? And, you know, is chipboard better than virgin wood? And, and, and they're trying to, you know, do the best they can. And you can actually see when you look at IKEA furniture that, that each generation of the same piece of furniture, sometimes it's slightly improved. They manage to save a little bit of, you know, this or that, or I mean, improved or, or more efficient in a way, which is a kind of improvement. But yeah, I think it, in the future, we really need to collectively as, as a, you know, as a group of, of humans to try and, and better things, even existing things, make them better, more efficient, more smart. You're listening to Redacted. To stay up to date with the show and see what else we've got going on, be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at redacted underscore design POD. Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. Cheers. What's the, the design process like for uh, working with one specialist in southern Japan? 
So Japan is very particular in the sense that um, translation, um, you know, it's a bit proverbial, but yes, it, it is quite difficult to have direct discussions sometimes, especially with uh, craft people, because uh, not a lot of them uh, speak English. We, we find sometimes that um, there's this moment where it's very helpful to actually send over 3D prints, for instance, uh, instead of instead of sending drawings or being too, you know, if, if you can sort of skip one step and just send something physical, then maybe you can save a lot of energy down the line. So that's that's the type of uh, things that we usually do. And, and how does that compare to um, a 25 person room full of stakeholders? Well, when you're in a meeting with IKEA and 25 uh, people, you're actually trying to cope with the, it's like drinking from a fire hose of, you know, this, the wood has to be done this way because blah, 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 we tested the force it, uh, and uh, the strength, the resistance, the efficiency, the amount of uh, plastic. Do we need to put uh, glass fiber in it to reinforce it? This option is better because we can save the glass fibers. So the plastic is easier to recycle and we can use recycled plastic and etc. It's like you're trying to cope, you know, with all these amount of information. And then when it's your turn, you're basically saying, OK, all that is great. Can we not have this visible screw here? <laughs> it's a bit more, you know, just, okay, great. What about this cherry on top? Let's move it uh, there. And that's it. So how do you prevent yourself from getting overwhelmed? Um, sometimes you can't, you're just overwhelmed. Like we're designing office seating at the moment, like task chairs, you know, um, with like full on mechanisms and uh, I don't know, five or six different kinds of settings. And then you have all the norms that you have to cater for, for the international market. And uh, that's completely overwhelming. And also the files that you get as a design studio, you know, you get these, um, these um, solid work assemblage that are so heavy that you feel that your computer is about to crash when you open them. You know, <laughs> that's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's overwhelming. But it's what we learn is that if you, you know, if, if you, no matter what, how complicated it is if you actually you know have logical thinking process and and start from the beginning and give it enough time you actually can figure out pretty much anything we recently just went through that problem at work with having like the solidworks files way too big we uh we got some really fancy patterning CAD done and we were like, oh my gosh, how are we going to send it to the tool makers? Exactly. Because um, yeah. <laughs> like they can't use Google Drive. And I think we ended up having to WeTransfer it in like quarter segments and it wasn't even an assembly. It was a single body part. Like it was just a like, <laughs> well, there's 16 of them in total, but it would take like two hours to like open the CAD. And mm. then like the rendering was a nightmare. Like the whole thing was absolutely like almost impossible but it, it'll be exciting when it gets over the line <laughs> but yeah you definitely don't want to accidentally press the wrong button <laughs> so do you have any moments that really felt like a make or break time for big game and what was that like and how did you get through that um so um yeah well i mean it's when we when we don't get along and we we fight a little bit i guess that's the most uh, difficult uh, part about uh, being, you know, working with friends. I mean, we used to say we started working together because we were friends and now 19 years later, we're still friends and that's our biggest achievement. Yeah, it's a bit of a punchline. I don't know if it's uh, essentially it's it's all about human interaction, or, I guess, our, our, our discipline. So you have to you have to make sure there's good understanding that um, 
you know, you don't spend too much time, uh, you know, discussing everything, but you still need everyone to be actually aware of what's going on. And for instance, our roles in the studio are are pretty interchangeable. We we do that on purpose so that if one of us is away for a holiday or is you know sick or whatever, we don't stop the project. That's very important for us. So we make sure that all the three of us are aware at all times of what's happening and and that is able to do any given task. And also it also means that the creation process is uh, is completely born out of a discussion together. So it's it's not possible for us to say, you know, I had this idea or he had this idea. It's sort of like we sort of were discussing it and this idea popped up. It's it's sort of, you know, completely organic. So ours versus mine. Yeah. So wait, you've been working together for 19 years? Yes. Yeah, that's long, right? <laughs> yeah, I was like, so 19 years and you're still friends. Like, that's a real significant achievement. Like most marriages don't last 19 years these days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's still, you know, I feel really blessed also because, you know, we're three people. So we're, we're a democracy, right? It's like, you know, when, when we have to take a decision and it's a hard decision and sometimes, you know, we don't necessarily have the same opinion. We are, you know, we, we were smart enough to sort of, you know, okay, if two people are convinced, I'll, you know, I'll just go with the flow. And, uh, and that's in a way it's kind of, you know, sometimes we meet some, some people and they ask us like, who's the boss. Right. And we're like, <laughs> we, we don't have a boss. That's the whole point of you know. I mean, the three of you. There's always going to be a tiebreaker. <laughs> so you guys are based in Switzerland. Would you say that comes with any significant advantages or disadvantages? Um, so yeah, advantages it's, um, it's, from where we are, we can take a direct train to Paris in three hours, 3.5 hours, three hours to Milan. We have, you know, we can go on a plane to Scandinavia anywhere or so that's that's really good because you have so many companies doing an amazing job in Europe. That's great. And then um, the design history in Switzerland is amazing. If you think about the typeface Helvetica, for instance, I mean, there's this whole thing about Swiss design being, you know, very clean and crisp and um, and then even the Swiss made, uh, you know, they've done a good job at, as, you know, promoting Swiss made as a, a very sort of seeked, uh, sought after, sorry, <laughs> uh, thing. And then, um, and then it's also really close to nature, which is, which is super nice because then we can swim on in the lake, which is right in front of us. And we have a view on the Mont Blanc. So yes, that's, that's, uh, really uh, great i'm promoting it on the on the downside it's um it's one of the most expensive countries in the world so you have to it's not easy to make a living um, um it's not berlin you know where you used to be able to make a living on a shoestring it's uh you, you kind of have to create an income for yourself hustle yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. you have to get this bread <laughs> yeah you know would you say there are any pros and cons to the culture as well yeah, well, for, for Switzerland, there's this uh, thing about being really understated, which is a classic, like very quiet and understated and sort of, and which is in a way it's it's good because it means being humble, but at the same time, it also means a little bit short selling yourself. Um, and Swiss design is a little bit a uh, representation of that because it's, it's known for being super functional, super efficient, but uh, sometimes it looks a bit basic as well and it's almost a bit boring uh, <laughs> you know 
So, and we, because we're not all originally from, from Switzerland, it's also nice because we have a sort of outside view on this local culture. So we, we try to pick what's really interesting about it and sort of not fall into the downsides of that, uh, of that culture. But it's, it's very, it's always very interesting to think about local culture, especially Switzerland. It's so small and it's in the middle of these, you know, big countries that also have big personalities like France, Italy, Germany, you know. So what's the lingua franca um, in big game? You mean like literally we speak French. That's our uh, language that we speak together. No, that's it. That's the line, my line done. And figuratively, <laughs> you mean figuratively, like uh, what, what do we really share? Yeah, yeah. I think when you want to become a designer, at least for us, it's really this desire to imagine something and see it become real you know that's mm -hmm. kind of this that's where you get the kick i guess you know yeah you, you sort of imagine something together and you're like wow it would be so nice if it actually existed like this and that's i think that's the the thing that always gets us motivated when we start a project it's funny it's it the project could be really well paid or or not really well paid it's it's sort of it doesn't really influence the motivation we have i guess it's really more about like having this sort of idea together and really wanting it to happen that i think that's really the kick okay that's really cool i always think when like product production samples turn up at work it's like seeing a rock star you've seen them on the t the like computer screen so much like in cad and then you finally get to see them like in a render and you're like oh this looks good and then it turns up in person and you're just like oh my gosh it's like seeing someone famous absolutely yeah <laughs> you've yeah, spent yeah. so much time fixating on it and like all those little details and you're like yeah i made this <laughs> exactly can you think of any examples of how you've been influenced by your local culture in your work? Yeah, so for instance, uh, we we work a lot with a French company called Opinel that make folding knife. It's it's very well known in France and they've existed for uh, more than 100 years and it's still family owned. So in this type of thing, you really, you know, you need to respect the DNA so much and the history. So and it's it's kind of the local French culture in a way, you know. You're dealing with an asset of uh, of French culture. It's like designing a baguette or something. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, and that's yeah. So that's you know, you, you, it's not just designing a knife. You have to take into consideration all the culture around it. So definitely. Yeah. And what would be the design process you go through when you design a brand product in the the big game way? So the the classic way, the most basic thing is like phase one there's you know creative ideation and we usually present three directions i mean that's the most basic right uh, and then phase two uh, the idea is selected and reworked um, to be adapted for production we make a prototype and then phase three is production follow-up all the way to uh, industrial product um, but then this is it depends so much on on the company like for some companies, we, we start before by uh, having workshops with them for defining the design strategy or the brief. And then it stops later sometimes because we do the art direction of pictures. We design even the point of sales, the packaging. We do press presentations. We do social media on an Instagram. We do uh, even exhibition scenography. So it's very open. But the basis is really these three phases. And I think it's uh, maybe it's a bit universal sounds incredible it sounds like you've really got your fingers in all the different areas <laughs> do you guys not do uh, any of this in your in your own design uh, practices i think for me it tends to be a lot more engineering led 
Okay. We will often work backwards. We'll figure out how we're going to make something before we actually do the design work. Mm. Um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the best way of doing it, but it's we're usually given a budget first, and I have a reputation drop hold of we deliver on that budget. Mm. And it's generally just down to the clientele. I'd love to do it your way, but I usually work backwards. Um, Lucy would probably be in something else entirely. Mm. Uh, we do it very similarly to like your process. We generally get a brief, whether that's from our CEO or from like a client. We go through like a research, creative ideation phase, then we start comparing all the market leading products. We define what features we need. Sometimes we define what our whole collection will be at the beginning. Like we need to have this offering and this offering to really make a impact in the marketplace. And then we start doing like the CAD work, which I'm generally not that involved in. I'm more involved in the research uh, concept ideation phase, a bit of the styling. I do quite a bit of the renders on the other side, a lot of animation. I do a lot of augmented reality assets. I do quite a bit of packaging design at the moment, but not necessarily what I would define as point of sale. I'm not designing like the stand or a banner or things like that. And then we have people who do the social media and graphic design. So ours is very kind of segmented. Okay. So yeah, so pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm, interesting. So how would you define the big game design philosophy? Uh, that's a very tough one. <laughs> we used to say a long time ago, simple, functional, optimistic. And I guess what we tried to mean by that was to create something appropriate, but not boring, something comfortable, affordable, enjoyable, surprising. That's what you used to say. What do you say right now? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, just, we talk a little bit less about this, I guess, you know. I love how Google used to have like do no evil and then they just secretly like crossed it out. It's like, Google, what are you up to? <laughs> <laughs> in 2008, you guys published your first monograph of your work with your second in 2019. What was your reasoning for doing this and what were the unexpected benefits? So the first um, uh, monograph that we published in 2008 was on the occasion of our first uh, retrospective exhibition, which is a little bit silly because we had only started working four years prior to that. And we were so proactive and so sort of energetic and, and putting things out that we just wanted very, very hard to do things. And I think it was a great experience also in the sense that we got to do a lot of the rookie mistakes that you do when you make a book. So it's a, it's kind of a strange book. It's a, we asked so many people to write in it. I think there's like 15 authors or something, and it's a bit of an, an artistic book, if you will. And then the second one we published in 2019, this one was a bit more mature, obviously, and, and closer to what we really wanted to say, we just tried to explain basically what we do in the simplest possible way, like it would be for a kid. Um, and, and we, you know, we, we, we kept it very, very simple and very honest and very open and it's doing quite well. The book it's been translated into Korean, which is great. We, we really love Korea. We, we have a lot of projects going on there, so we're super thrilled about it. And the benefits for, for publishing a book is, I mean, first of all, for you is, is that you're sort of taking a step back and having an overview on your work. And then it's also a great opportunity to defend what you believe in as a designer. You can put the philosophy in the back. <laughs> yeah, you can put like, what is your slogan? I don't know. <laughs> it's a secret. Or you can just start with a wonderful manifesto. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So were there any other like tangible business benefits? Did you get clients finding you through the bookstore or people wanting to work with you? I mean, the existence of the book, I think we we gave it away to a lot of people. I think that's in the end, it's it's a nice way to have a portfolio that says exactly what you mm-hmm. wanted to say. you know and so i'm not sure if maybe i mean we've had some people in the past that came to us saying we we've read your book and we're happy to meet you but i think it works even more on the other way around which is you send the book to someone you want to open a discussion with and and you have a meeting after that that happened a lot that's incredible it must be great to meet with people who have had a chance to read it and really understand what you're about and the things that are important to you so that like you know you're on the same like yeah. path to begin with. Yeah, and you can totally see some people have read it so thoroughly that it's it's almost like an exam on your book, you know, you don't really remember what you wrote. <laughs> and others have had a very quick go through and it's a bit more like you know, so you can tell already from that. <laughs> I mean that's that's a great segue into this into this next topic of like you've got clients in Europe, US, China, Japan. Maybe Korea, it seems that that's not the new frontier for you. What's your approach on finding, managing and building relationships with these clients? Do you just send them a, a copy of your book in the mail or? So we travel a lot and we attend a lot of trade shows. We, we do a lot of exhibitions. Uh, we're going to do some exhibitions in Korea in December. We're also traveling to India in December to see uh, some new clients that we're working with. So it's about being mobile and meeting people. There's no way around it. I think if for us, if we hadn't traveled so much, we would have much less uh, opportunities like this. And it's sometimes you're the one who's... The, demanding it and sometimes you know just being there actually is a is you know is a good way to start a discussion are there any missteps in your career that have happened that maybe you've learned some valuable lessons from or like insights i think we're we're quite fortunate that we have very few regrets for things that have been put out into production because that's that's the most terrible thing that can happen to you as a designer is if you know there's a product on the market and it's not good, you know, because you've literally created waste. And that's, uh, I think that's the, like the capital sin of the designer. And so the bad experiences with, uh, with clients usually don't make it into a product and that's good. That's, that's sort of <laughs> a way to, to sort of, you know, protect. Yeah. Something to be thankful for. Yeah, exactly. Could you imagine buying a chair and you can feel the ghosts of the bad relationship in that chair? Well, that'd be brutal. <laughs> but I mean, like, if you sit on a lot of chairs, seriously, the some, you know, even good looking ones, but just how uncomfortable they can be, you know, that's. A... <laughs> you can feel the relationship. Uh, is there a big difference in culture between the clients you've worked with in terms of like how their size relates to how they function? Oh yes, totally. I mean, if you if you work with a big organization, there's a lot of process that has to be done internally actually. Yeah. So so selling your idea is is really a whole discussion that you have to motivate a lot. Um and it's completely different if you're talking to a single person uh, that's a producer and takes the decision on the spot. So that's a difference. But also you learn so much from big organizations. Risk assessment uh, in a big organization is, is, is incredible. You know, they actually brainstorm on all the things that can go wrong with the product. 
which is uh you know we've we've been part of these sessions sometimes it's it's scary you know you're like but why would someone put it in the microwave with wine inside why does it you know it's like like crazy things but it's kind of you know it's a part of the thing why would a hundred kilo person step on a child's chair Exactly, exactly, right? But but you know, yeah, it's good that you do it because these things can happen. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty normal in the, at, at your average Australian barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> what would happen on an Australian barbecue with this product? <laughs> if you need anything to test, let us know. Okay, we'll send yeah. we'll, we'll courier it to you. This is a question we normally ask, but I'm not sure it's necessarily that relevant for you. But how do you convince others that good design is a value add? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, maybe it comes from um, being in Europe or anything, but it, it, I think people are more and more educated to design. So it's we rarely have to advocate uh the role of design or that design is important. And actually in a lot of companies that we work with, there are already um, designers working in-house. So it's kind of part of the culture already. So yeah, we're thankful that we don't have to. That sounds amazing. Do you have an example of where maybe someone wanted to make an easier to manufacture mold or something that you really fought for that was going to cost more for the product, but it was going to overall really make that product hit home in a way that it wouldn't without that extra complexity? So uh, it's a very good question. Actually, our approach, um, when you design something by nature, there will be compromises and, and questions that will arise. And we always try when whenever something like this happens we try to make it a plus you know we we try to always okay we're gonna factor this in but we're gonna try to you know make this better even you know maybe it's simplifying maybe it's sort of tweaking something so it's producible but we're gonna do this in the best possible way it's it's very rare that we advocate for something that ends up being more expensive or more complex. We really think that uh, there's a beauty in sort of simplifying, making more affordable, always more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I just think of a product that I own, which I'm particularly fond of. I'm not actually sure who designed it, but it's like a little chili grinder. It's almost like a little microplane that you spin around. And I can just imagine the conversation in the studio, how they made it to look like the shape of the chili and somebody I feel would have really deeply pushed for that extra like mold component Mm. so that it would have that beautiful organic shape when they could have probably just made it as a slightly like off to the side tube. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really resonate with the product having been in conversations like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I've, I don't think we've ever had a moment in, in where uh, where we said, you know, it's going to be more expensive, but you have to do it this way because the design is better. I think we always tried to say, OK, then let's do it like this. But but let's try this other thing. You know, it's uh, yeah. I feel like that's part of being an industrial designer is working within the constraints and really enjoying that problem solving aspect of the work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also something that's crucial because it's it's so, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for us, I mean, in general, the rule of thumb is two, two years from the original brief to it's to the time the product is on the market. So 
you need to be resourceful and, and you need, you know, because there, there will be challenges every time, even if it looks simple, it's, there will be some questions and some uh, things to be changed. Definitely. Two years. I'm actually really envious. I never get oh, yeah. to. <laughs> wow. Yeah, exactly. Or, or more, or more. Yeah. yeah. The last one I got was like, oh, you've got four weeks. I'm like, great. Great. Um, I'm going to go great before I'm 30. <laughs> we had a project with a major retailer who forgot to actually brief us on the project. So they gave us, I think it was an afternoon to like send back the concept CAD and renders. And then they, they placed an order for like a million units as their first run. So it was, wow. it was all okay in the end, but um, <laughs> it was a bit intense. <laughs> Crazy. What, what, was, what kind of product? Uh, it's actually a pretty boring product. <laughs> They're tray dividers made out of LDPE. So I I probably shouldn't like have it in the podcast, but we made it for. Okay. And they were literally like, we want this, but we need it now. Like, end of <laughs> business. So like we got in, we like catted it. It was a pretty simple product, mm. but it's actually um, one of their best selling items. So wow, it's, cool. Um, really exciting. Yeah. I definitely bring that up in my performance review one day. <laughs> <laughs> so for for the veterans out there, like what would you say needs to be said that is left unsaid? I would say that um, maybe that it's all in the execution, that the design is actually the details, the choice of materials, the care in which things are put together. I mean, when you look at products and you see so many poorly designed, you know, injected plastic things with sink marks, flow lines, parting lines, poorly located, cheap surface treatment everything it's it's such a you would expect people to be knowledgeable about this but sometimes you're amazed at at how uh good things are actually uh yeah how they are designed only you knew how bad things are it's amazing how sometimes mm. the gate ends up on the front of the product yeah. <laughs> like how did that get there exactly yeah in 2015, you set up a clip collaborative business with Cindy Lamb and Big Game to provide an in-flight hospitality solution to the aviation industry. What was the story behind that? Um, so we've been very interested in, in, you know, when you take the plane and you receive that tray and you're always wondering, you know, who designed it and you're completely captive. You have nothing else to do but to get your tray. Um, and since a, a very early age, I guess, uh, from growing up in, in Asia and traveling a lot, I was um, very interested in, in, in that field. And um and there are some really great stories behind it. Like, you know, think about the Golden Age, Pan Am or the Concorde or, you know, uh, Finair uh, with uh, Tapio Vercala, who designed amazing tableware. So we were always sort of interested in that field and uh, designed for airlines. And then we got the opportunity in 2015 uh, to start a venture in that business from a, a Cindy Lam, which is a, a lady that had been working in it for, for quite a while and knew a lot about it. And... It's it's very interesting because it's a it's an industry that has huge numbers of production, but uh, is actually quite small. Doesn't have a lot of players, and so we we decided to launch a little venture that would uh, both design for airlines and actually produce. Um, so we we do all the design here in Switzerland, and we have a, an office in Hong Kong that handles production. So we design trays and equipment and uh, you know tableware for uh, Swiss Airlines, JetBlue in the US, Hong Kong Airlines, Fly Dubai. It sounds like it's quite a prestigious item to design because I know in Australia with Qantas, which is like our major uh, airline, they got Mark Newson to do their in-flight tableware. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys have done an amazing job with Qantas. It's uh, it's really great. I think it's it's still amongst the top examples for a really nicely done um, uh, in in flight design, basically. And also, what's very uh, remarkable about Qantas, I think, is the um, holistic approach. Because I think Mark Newson did almost everything in the plane, right? My understanding is he, he he just did the the cutlery. Um, they probably couldn't afford to do the rest of the cabin. One of my favorite things about the Mark Newson set is he's taken something that is so like kind of innocuous and created something that people want to take back with them. Like I know my aunt has a small collection of his beautiful little like tumblers, and I feel like that's a real achievement to take something like that that people are wanting to bring into their homes. Absolutely. And it also boils down to the most beautiful thing about design, right? It's like, you're going to serve a drink anyhow, you know, to these people on the plane. So why not do it in a, in a glass that's actually enhancing the experience and, you know, making this moment more pleasurable just through the sort of the container for the drink. That's kind of how design can actually change a little bit your experience. I love how he uses gravity in the cup as well. So it's got a really low center of gravity. So it's unlikely to topple over if you like mm. hit turbulence and things like that. So it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so now that you're so much, you know, deeper in 19 years into a, a three man show, what advice would you give to your younger self, you know, just starting out? Yeah. Be curious, get out there, get involved. I mean, we did it. Um, if it was an advice specifically to us younger, I would say, really read the contract before signing it. Maybe ask for a version in English or French so you are sure that you understand it. <laughs> Sounds like there's a story in there. <laughs> I mean, we've all signed contracts a bit uh, a bit faster than we should have, I guess, right? <laughs> Gosh, that sounds like one you've got to almost always learn the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no way around it. Looking back, what would you say was a weakness in your design education? I mean, we, we had very little uh, training in, in sort of uh, business or, um, or, you know, setting up a company or anything like that. It doesn't matter because it was none of it was very difficult. But I, I guess it would have been nice to be made aware of a few things that you just have to look out for. Because I guess for the first 10 years, you're, you basically have no idea and you're sort of doing a lot of mistakes. And, uh, and anyway, you're not in for for the money because otherwise you would have chosen another line of work, I guess. So, uh, <laughs> so it's like, a, you know, it's just like, I guess a very short, very, you know, very concise uh, moment in a room with a PowerPoint and somebody telling you, just be careful with this and this and this <laughs> and you're, and you'll be good. <laughs> I really wish that like design institutions were more encouraging of entrepreneurial spirit. I feel like you're very lucky to have business partners who are such hustlers. So I feel like that's not always a quality that's found in industrial designers. Yeah, because I mean, if you, if I guess if you become a designer in the first place, that because you want to create things and you want to, you know, be by yourself and do things and, and it's nice and everything, but you have to get out there. So uh, also one of the reasons why we're lucky to be three guys, because when somebody gets shy, there's the two behind there are pushing like hey <laughs> go, go and speak to him <laughs> yeah that sounds very similar to mine and fraser's relationship <laughs> <laughs> who's the shy one <laughs> lucy always says oh, i'm really good at schmoozing at dinner parties and such but like that does not come naturally natural to me at all it 
It mostly comes down to my mum. I don't know if I've ever said that. I just say you keep walking away from me. Because <laughs> I, I just go like, what, what would my mum do? My mum would be throwing shoes at me if I did not uh, speak to every single person in the room. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm just like having flashbacks of her just like yelling at me in Cantonese saying like, if you're in the room, they want you need to introduce yourself to every single person, even if you don't like them. Um, it's like, okay, well, that's good. That's good. I didn't get that from my parents. <laughs> it's solid advice and I try to follow it and it definitely has mm. paid dividends, but uh, it is not something that comes naturally to me. I feel like it's not so much that I'm shy. It's more that I think Fraser pushes me to try and apply myself in ways that I wouldn't normally or like put my work out there or I'm not necessarily shy in meeting people. He creates the perfect <laughs> intro so then you can sort of carry on to this. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Look, I, I try and teach people to do things the same way I've been taught. You know, uh, the best way to learn how to build an airplane is by jumping out of one with the parts. I should mention, I'm also scared Fraser's going to start throwing shoes at me. So that's <laughs> definitely, <laughs> it's definitely encouraging. Well, thank you very much, Augustine. Thanks very much for taking the time away from Big Game and coming on and sharing your story. Well, thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. It's it's a real pleasure. It was uh, very nice to talk with you. If we're laughing, it's always a good sign. Absolutely. I loved the chat. Thank you so much. A pleasure. If you if you ever come to Switzerland, uh, it would be a pleasure to uh, have you at the studio. Ooh. <laughs> I would love to come. I love an, a studio invitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll have to bring a bottle. Are you guys a fan of gin or wine or... I mean, we drink anything. Don't worry about oh, it. We're, we're okay, good. my options are wide. I feel like then. you can't let him bring anything other than the wine bottle you designed. Like... <laughs> no, don't bring anything, actually. If you come and see us, we'll have a picnic by the lake. It would be very laid back and very cool. We're definitely bringing gin. Sounds amazing. With baguettes, <laughs> though, right? <laughs> for those of you listening in, remember to check the show notes for links to anything we've discussed. And until next time, this has been Redacted. The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please check and try again. The number you have dialed has been redacted. 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 redacted.